So you're looking at the older version of him. It doesn't get any better than what he is now. I just want to let you know it's all downhill. Yeah, I am the older. But I did hear his children this week call him the old man. I took great joy in that. I did. Yeah, when your grandkids are calling your son old, that's incredibly just a blessing to be able to, to hear that. And uh, anyway, it's been good to be here. I came to Winnipeg about 12 years ago. Uh, when Aaron first came to Winnipeg uh, to plant Renaissance. And I remember meeting that winter. Why we came to Winnipeg in the winter, I have no idea, but we did. We didn't know any better. We know better now. We come in May when the mosquitoes, the state bird of Manitoba, are uh, eating you alive. Um, I killed about 30 of them last night at the kitchen table. I thought they thought I was for dinner. But anyway... um, so we, we're, not, we're familiar with Winnipeg, although I have not been here for three years because uh, COVID kept me out of the, of the country for quite some time, but it's good to be here. There's something wrong with you people. Did you know that? Seriously, turn to the person next to you and say, there's something wrong with you. You know why something's wrong with this church? Because you just guys are not normal. I mean, I've been a pastor for 40 years. I've been in denominational work now for, for about five, five and a half and I'm in a lot of churches in the last five and a half years. And in my last church, I was there almost 11 years. And so uh, I, I'm in a lot of churches in the last five years. You guys, you just don't know when to go home. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, last Sunday I was here and you guys hung out here for an hour after the service just talking to each other. And then I was here Wednesday night and we left people in, the, in here and we've been here an hour. We got home at almost 1130 Wednesday night. I mean, and I'm just thinking, man, this is an incredible church. Uh, I can't express to you the joy that is ours to know that three years ago when Aaron moved here, he and Sam and our grandkids, and, and we started praying for this church that you would be at this stage where you are today, not just numerically, but I believe spiritually, uh, where you are a, 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 a church that is unique not just in Winnipeg or Canada, but even in the United States. There are not many churches like this church that I know of. And so I wanted to tell you how incredibly blessed we are to be able to see, participate, to worship with you today, to see our son. I'm not sure if any guy has any more passion than him. Do you know anybody more than him? I have no idea. He's a lot like his mother. He's not like me. And uh, I take, she takes credit for all the good stuff. I take credit for all the bad stuff. So if you have your Bible this morning, take your Bible and turn with it to 2 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 through 21. And, um, but it is an honor to be here today to stand in the place where Matt and Nino and, and Chris stood last Sunday and preached and, uh, and then Aaron preaches. And uh, it's just great to be here. You guys are very, also very blessed to have some really great communicators of the word. I've listened to many of the sermons that Matt's preached and Nino's preached. I'm just trying to figure out why Nino's not preaching in Portuguese, brother. I uma coisa familiar. Eu falo português, ele também fala português. Joia? Tudo bem. I grew up in Brazil. My parents were missionaries, so I speak fluent Portuguese. So I was excited to, to, to be able to see Nino. I've been praying for you, Nino, and, and for your medical condition and all of that, and it's good to to have talked to you last Sunday, to know how God is blessing you through that, brother. And I'm excited about what God's about to do through you as you move to your new church plant. 
Looking forward to hearing what God's going to do through that. That is incredible. Your church is already sending people to plant another church, and you're barely two and a half years old. Again, you're not normal. <laughs> Turn to the person next to you and say, you're not normal. Go ahead. Just tell them. Look them back in the eye and say, well, you're not normal either, buddy. Okay, so we are... He's in the same pod, right? Anyway, if you're new, uh, you'll know. I mean, you guys were here last week for an hour and a half in a service. Who does that? Hour and 40 minutes? So Aaron said I had, I had, had to preach at least an hour because that's what he does. We love the word, man. You love the word. Anyway, having said all of that, you know, today's title of our message is, is uh, Finishing Strong. And... Uh, and I believe that's exactly what God is instructing the leadership of the Apostle Paul in his penmanship as he concludes this letter, to encourage the church to finish strong. And, and, I, and I think it's, it's sometimes important for us to take a look and to take careful notice when somebody finishes a letter like the one that the Apostle Paul is finishing to not only young Timothy, but also to this very young church. There are important words that he wants to say, and I think they're worthy of us considering these because he wants this church and Timothy to finish strong. It's one thing to start well. It's another thing to finish well. And I think that's exactly what he wants us to do today. So take your Bible and turn with me. If you have a copy of Scripture, stand with me. It's my tradition to stand in honor of God's infallible, inerrant, and holy word, to read the word of God, and then to pray, and then dive in. So let's just sort of Sort of look at all of the passage, and then we'll come in and take a look at what God has for us today. The word of the Lord says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have answered, I mean, swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. God, thank you again for the opportunity we have to stand in honor of your word, bless this time. Use it to not only enrich us, but to help us to apply it so that we might fully understand what exactly you're trying to communicate, not just to a church that existed many years ago, but what it communicates into our lives as a church family and as individual members of this church. Speak through your word today, through your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. I don't know if you know it or not, but a couple of months ago, my father died. Um, he was also a pastor, a missionary, and I remember sitting and listening to him preach for many years. Uh, we used to journey around with him in Brazil to preach when he'd travel, and we got to where we knew his sermons to the T, and we could almost finish his, his sermons before he got to the finish line. And uh, I remember he was a traveling evangelist and planted many churches in Brazil, and you know, all up and down Manaus and, and all over. Uh, the Amazon and, and many other places. And um, I remember when the last year of his life, he was virtually deaf. I mean, I don't know why, but he lost his hearing. And so communication was very difficult with my dad. And so uh, we had to have this white little whiteboard that we wrote on in a race and write in a race because he couldn't hear it. I mean, he couldn't, couldn't hear anything. It's a good thing because 
my mother's very verbal. <laughs> so, uh, and he was difficult to deal with uh, at the last year in his life. But I remember walking in and my dad was in this, he was in hospice, meaning that he was in a hospital bed in the uh, retirement center where my parents were living in this uh, one bedroom apartment with, you know, seven or eight dozen other seniors in this living center. It's a great place. And uh, so he was there and I walked in and uh, he looked at me very strangely and he, I mean, locked in on my eyes and he said, he called me Charlie, which he very rarely ever does. My wife calls me Charlie and she said, he said, Charlie, uh, can I ask you a question? I said, sure, dad. He said, am I dying? I don't know how many conversations you've had with your parents, but that's a strange one. That's one you never imagined that you would ever have with your, especially with your father. Am I dying? And I thought about it for a brief second, and I just honestly said, yes, Dad, you're dying. But I then wrote on the, on the little clipboard, I said, but you're going to a much better place. You're going to heaven. And he smiled. That was the last conversation I had with my dad. It's a conversation that I probably will never forget in my life because it was the last conversation. As I read this text, and I was assigned this text because this is where you're coming to the conclusion of your study, kind of dawned on me that the Apostle Paul more than likely is in chain to a Roman guard, a centurion in a very cold, dark, dungy place, and is thinking about the people that he loves. And on his mind and in his heart is Timothy, who he has fathered in the ministry for quite some time. There's an investment that the Apostle Paul has in Timothy's life like no other. And because of his deep affection for Timothy, he's writing this letter that possibly could be the very last time he communicates with Timothy. And so as we think about Paul writing this letter, uh, an older, like myself, pastor, writing to a younger pastor, probably thinking in his mind, not knowing what his future is going to be, because he's in prison by the Romans, more than likely is going to be sentenced to die, standing up for the faith, this may be my last time to communicate to Timothy. Now that, that weighs pretty heavy on somebody's heart when they write this letter. And it's understandable some of the things that you've been dealing with and studying in this text. So keep that in mind. This could be the last words that he writes. But not only to young Timothy, but also to the church, because he knew that probably Timothy would read this to the church, and the church would also understand and hear the letter that he's writing to Timothy as well. Paul also has this, this church on his heart. He spent two missionary journeys there. He helped plant the church when the leadership of the Spirit led him to this place to plant this church. He went there, dark place, hard place, in need of the gospel, and by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, life was birthed, a church was born, and people got saved, and a family of God came together in the church we know as Ephesus. He goes back a second time, as you know, in this study, to spend some time in discipleship to disciple these people. And upon leaving, he realizes and recognizes, I need to send them a pastor, and there's no one that I trust any more than Timothy. And so he sends Timothy to shepherd, to pastor these people. And as he's writing this letter, he's thinking about this church, and probably this is the last time 
I may have an opportunity to communicate to them. So what will I speak into their lives? What will be memorable enough that they won't forget what I am about to say? Now, I think the whole letter is important, but how do you end a letter like that? What do you reflect upon? What do you want them to hear for the last time possibly? He didn't know that there was a second Timothy, and we don't know exactly when Ephesus was written to the church, but more than likely all are there about the same time, but this may have been his last time. And so he gives them, I think, three admonitions that I want us to consider in which he wants them to finish the race, to finish what God has started through the gospel preaching and through the discipleship that has taken place in the gospel, he wants them to finish strong. And there are three admonitions that he gives here. First of all, he wants them to steward their future. And what he's saying to them, he's saying to us. He wants us as well as them to understand that we have a stewardship, a responsibility to steward our future. Because you see, stewardship is an assigned responsibility that God gives us in which he entrusts us with certain talents and time and treasure, these, these, these things that he gives us, he graces us with, and he wants us to steward them well because he knows, and he wants them to understand that one of these days, they are going to stand before God and give an account in the future of how they have invested what he has entrusted to them. And so he wants them to take a look at all that God has given them as a living trust to invest, not just in myself or themselves, but to allow God to use it to be a blessing to others in the advancement of the kingdom. And in this stewardship, he first of all wants them to recognize a concern. If you take a look at the text in verse 17, this recognition is described for us in verse 17. He says, as for the rich in this present age. Interesting, he starts out with, as for the rich in this present age, he is, he is singling out the who. And I see in this text the who, the what, and the why. And this is the who he's writing to these people who are the rich, who are the wealthy, who are the financially well-off people who are part of the church. And so he says, as for the rich in this present age, you're rich now in the world's possessions. I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to look at that and go, that doesn't talk to me. Anybody in here believe they're rich? Anybody want to? Okay, we got a few honest people because compared to the world, to the rest of the world, we are rich. Now, I am not Canadian. I'm American. But I have a son, a, a daughter-in-law, and three Canadian grandchildren. By the world's standards, Canadians are wealthy. By the world's standards. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist for us to understand that God is not only speaking to these in this church, but he's speaking to you and to me today in the church in America and in Canada because of all the people around the world, we are indeed some of the most best people financially than anybody else. Whether you believe it or not, try living in a foreign country in some areas where they don't even have running water. And so he's speaking then to the who is to the wealthy in the church. There are some people who have financial resources. They are wealthy. And he's speaking then to Timothy as well as to the church. And he's saying, as for the rich in this present world, charge them. 
He's speaking to the preacher and he's saying to the pastor, the shepherd of the church, you have a responsibility to charge them. This is a responsibility that the pastor has to the people that God has assigned to him to shepherd, is to charge them to do something about their resources. I don't know about you, but I know there are many churches in the U.S. and probably a few in this city and the Winnipeg area who don't, don't stop talking about money. Anybody know one like that? It seems like every subject, every time they get up, it's sow a seed of faith, give to my ministry, yada, yada, yada. And there are many pastors who speak a lot about money. There are some that I know who speak very little about money because they don't want to speak to the wealthy because they're afraid to offend them. Now, I'm not sure exactly where Timothy lies in this, but there are some people who are financially well off in this church, and he is being charged with responsibility. This is a command. It's not an option. It's, it's, it's a, an indicative in which Timothy is being charged by God through the penmanship of the Apostle Paul to charge them to see their wealth in this way. He is to not only instruct them, but he is to help them understand that they are to view themselves and the resources that God has entrusted to them in this way. What is the charge? That's the question. The who is the pastor and the people, but what is the charge? Notice, not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. There's a double charge here. Don't be haughty. Don't be arrogant. Don't be conceited. Don't be proud. It's understandable that those of us who see people with a lot of wealth are elevated to a position in our society that most of us do not enjoy. And it's for that reason we are often tempted to be arrogant, to be prideful, to look at ourselves above others and to diminish everyone else because of our financial resources, because of what we have somehow attained or what we possess. I mean, society teaches that. Wealthy people are treated differently. They stay in different places. They have servants. They have people that wait on them. And some of you in here may work for those who are of that caliber. And he's saying, don't be haughty. If you have this incredible wealth, don't be haughty. Don't be prideful. Don't be arrogant. Lower yourself down and be at the level of everybody else. Charge them to do that. But he also says... Charge them not to put their hopes in the uncertainty of riches. If COVID taught us anything, it taught us how uncertain life can be, right? All of a sudden, your world can change in a minute. And I think sometimes what rich people have a tendency to do is, and those of us who have some financial means or capital at some point, we put our trust in what we possess and somehow believe, convince ourselves that what we have attained and what we have deposited in the bank is secure, so therefore my present life is secure and my future is secure because I have financial resources available to me today and tomorrow. And yet America right now is contemplating a financial catastrophe if certain conditions aren't met with the United States government and maybe our whole system could fall flat on its face. And future prophecy predicts that this is going to happen. So it's uncertain. Riches are uncertain. They're not reliable. They are not dependable. They are not worthy of you and I putting our trust in. So don't trust in the uncertainty of your riches. Notice the why. Put it rather on God 
who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Why should you have this attitude about your wealth and your riches or the resources that God has entrusted you to invest? It's because God who richly provides us with some of the things that we have to enjoy. Is that what it says? Some things? Come on, church. Does it say some things? What's the answer to that? What does it say? What does it say? You didn't say that with conviction enough. What does it say? Everything. What does everything mean? Everything. Everything you possess has been given to you by God. Everything. That means nothing is yours. Everything. I was listening to Summer coming down here, and she was talking about my house, my house. She's talking about my house. And I was thinking about my sermon this morning. Sweetheart, you're two and a half years old. You think it's your house, but it ain't your house. <laughs> she doesn't pay the mortgage, does she? But really, it's not really their, her mom and dad's. It's God's house. The car you drive is his. And some of us may say, well, man, I'm the one that worked for that. Really? If, you, if, if God had given you the breath that you breathe right now, you would not be alive. If he didn't give you the health that you have, you wouldn't be available to work. If he didn't give you the thought process to be able to earn or whatever it is, the favor that he gave you, everything that you have and all the joy right now has been entrusted to you by God. It's a living trust, everything. And so when you leave this place and get in your car, I want you to think about this isn't my car, it's God's car. The house you drive up to or the apartment that you live in, this is God's house. This is his apartment. This job is his. This financial capital that I may earn or what I may say belongs to the Lord because he is the one who gave me everything. Notice, to what? To enjoy. Now, if there was ever a health, wealth, prosperity gospel message, this is it. Because God wants you to enjoy everything he's given you. But I'd rather sort of think of it this way, that I think we need to understand that what I believe he's talking about here is the joy of giving. Sure, there's joy in receiving. But what about the enjoyment of using what God has entrusted to me to investment and the joy that that brings in my life? Because I recognize and realize that it all belongs to God and I'm giving it to him to use in whatever capacity he chooses. That is the recognition we need to consider that everything comes from God. Secondly, there's a responsibility we need to exercise. And you look at the verse, verse 18, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. There are four verbs in that one sentence, meaning there's an action, there's an exercise, there's a a faith demonstration in which if we profess faith in Christ, there is an exercise, there is an expression that we give because of our trust, our faith, and our confidence in God. And because we know that everything comes from God and we trust him, we have our confidence in him, then we are to do good with what God has given us. In other words, we are to put our resources to good use, not just for ourselves, but to be good in helping others. Notice to be rich in good works, to pursue another kind of wealth, not just financial wealth, but spiritual wealth. There is a wealth other than just financial wealth. To practice generosity, notice he says to be generous, that means to be liberal, to be open-handed and to be open-hearted with God, what God has entrusted to us. And then he says to be ready to share. In other words, to prepare to to share whenever the need arises. You're just ready to share when the need arises. When there's a necessity, 
boom, you're right on the spot. Here, God's given this to me. I'm going to use what he's entrusted me because this is the resource that is needed. And he gave it to me for this moment, for this time, for this need. So we have a responsibility that we must exercise because of the wealth that he's given us. And thirdly, we have a reward that we can anticipate. It's the positive aspect about it. There's always a future, not just a future in this life, but I think in a future in the next life. When we stand before Christ, there's a reward that he will grant to those of us who entrust, who have been entrusted with what he's given us, and we invest it the way he wants us to. Notice the text, verse 19, thus. That word thus is not there by accident. God never, ever wastes a single word in your Bible. He doesn't say, oh, I don't know what to say. I'm just going to put thus. That's not how he works. Every word that he uses in the Bible is intentionally put for a reason. He's saying thus, he's saying, if you will recognize that everything comes from me and that everything that I have given you is a living trust that you are to invest wisely as I direct. In other words, put your resources to work. Pursue another kind of wealth, practice generosity, prepare to share at any opportunity, open-handed and open-fisted. Notice, this is what you can anticipate and expect. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This reward is a personal reward. Who's storing it up? The word is themselves. What is that the reference to? to the people who have been entrusted with this financial resource, with this wealth, those are the people he's referencing themselves. In other words, it's something that they have to do themselves. It's not something that I can do for you or you can do for others. It's something that you have a responsibility. It's a personal responsibility where you are the one that is doing it. You are storing it up. You are putting it in an escrow. You are storing it up. That's a personal responsibility. Notice the position that it grants you for a good foundation for the future. In other words, when I take what God has entrusted to me and invest it as God directs me to invest it, then I can expect to have laid for me a foundation that will be brought up in the future. This is not a works salvation that he's talking about. In other words, I can work my way into heaven and work my way into rewards. It simply means, I believe, that he's saying that this is an expression of what I claim to believe in. And if I claim to believe in Christ as my Savior, and he has entrusted to me these incredible resources to be invested in the work that he has called me to do or offered me to do, I have a position in which when I stand before Christ, by grace through faith alone, there will be a reward that will be given to me that I will have a foundation to be able to build upon where I stand before him and he will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have run a good race. You have fought a good fight. You have finished the course. You have fulfilled my purpose and my plan for your life. It's kind of similar to what I believe that you know, happened to the, 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 the talents in the Bible and Jesus' talents. He gave one five, one four, one three, one two, one one, and the master left and came back, and the one with five had doubled it, the one with four, and so on and so on. But the guy with one, what did he say? I, I knew you were a cruel, mean guy, so I, I buried it. I didn't do anything with it. And the end result was not a good one. See, there's a day of accountability that we're going to stand before God, even those of us who are in Christ. 
and give an account of the resources that he's entrusted to us and that we stand before him and we are going to have to give an account for that. And I think that's what he's talking about, a foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Notice the possessiveness of this. They will take hold of it. It will be theirs. It belongs to them. A notice of a life that is truly life. You know, there's a lie about what life is out there. He who dies with the most toys wins. Ever heard that? That's a lie. Because the life that he is talking about is a life of stewardship. A life that knows that it is better to give than to receive. A life that understands that in receiving I'm responsible then for using that which God has entrusted to me to advance his kingdom and to benefit others. I'm glad Teo's not here, but Owen is here. So I'm going to use a little story that I remember when they were kids. Oh, there you are, Teo. Be careful. Be careful. They were much younger then. They were in our home in Colorado when I served with the Colorado Baptist Convention there as the director of pastor care and church health. And they came, and they were smaller. There was about two, three years ago. And we have this little barn in our house, a little barn that has a cow and a pig and a horse and a fence. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You got one of those? Aaron played with it, and so did his older brother. We've kept it. And so we bring those toys out when the kids come. And uh, Taya was playing with it on one side of the room and uh, having a good time with it. And then he left that to go to another side of the room to play with something else. And a few minutes later, he looked up and saw his brother playing with the toy that he was playing with the other. And what do you think he said? Mine! Mine! Right? Ran over there and started taking stuff away. You know, sometimes we never grow out of that. Turn to the person next to you and say, he's talking about you. He's not talking about me. I don't know about you, but sometimes we act like toddlers. It's mine. It's mine. And even we release it sometimes. We have a tendency to say, that's mine. The reality is nothing is yours. It's all by God's grace and his favor upon your life. And if God has entrusted to you with what you possess, it's not just for your personal enjoyment, but it's to learn and understand that it's better to give than to receive. The joy of knowing that what God gives you, you can share. And I guarantee you, you cannot outgive God. You cannot. So enough of the health, wealth, prosperity stuff, right? Let's go to the second admonition we have here, safeguarding the faith. He says that we are to safeguard our faith. Notice in the text, he says in verse 20, as we safeguard the faith, in other words, we need to watch and protect the faith that we have, the faith and the trust that we place in the gospel of Jesus Christ, a deposit to guard. Notice verse 20, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Who's the recipient of this admonition? It is Timothy. I like O Timothy. I think this is a term of endearment. He's, oh, Timothy, my beloved brother, companion, co-worker, co-laborer, pastor of the church that together we have been ministering. Oh, Timothy, it's to him, it's to the preacher, it's to the pastor. He says, guard. That is a, 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 um, a 
not an army, but a, a military term. That's the word I'm looking for. It's a military term in which someone is assigned to a post and they are to stay awake, to stay alert, to be watchful for the enemy so that at any time they can warn the others that the enemy is coming. That's what he's saying here. So the enemy is coming. So he's wanting Timothy. This is a charge. This is a command. It's not an option for Timothy. He says, I want you to stay awake, to be alert, to be watching, to be waiting, so you can alert the others who may be asleep. Turn to the person next to you and say, I'm not asleep. How about you? Okay, wake them up if they are, all right? Oh, Timothy, guard thee. Don't skip that word. I like sometimes these little words, thee, because he's talking about an exclusivity here. Thee, deposit entrusted to you, meaning this is the one and only deposit. There is no other. I believe what he's saying to Timothy is, I want you to guard the gospel, the one and only gospel, for there is no other gospel. There's only one gospel that he is to guard, and it's the gospel of Christ when he heard the gospel proclaimed, he put his faith and trust in that gospel, and then that gospel continues to affect and to have its influence in one's life even post-conversion, because we all know the gospel isn't just about salvation, it's about discipleship and how we journey through life, continuing to rely upon and trust in the doctrines of the gospel. It says, oh, Timothy, guard thee, the one and only. And there are a lot of gospels out there, but there's only one. There's only one. There are not many roads to heaven. The deposit entrusted to you. And the original, it just says an entrusted deposit. He's reminding Timothy that he is to guard the one and only gospel that he received upon his conversion and then he was discipled after post-conversion by his mother and his grandmother and also Paul. It's been entrusted to him. So, guard the deposit, exercise discipline, verse 20, second part. Here's the discipline. As you're guarding the gospel, there's a, a discipline that I want you to exercise. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. The word avoid here means to turn and run. It doesn't mean stay and fight. It doesn't mean stay and argue. It means to, to get out of Dodge. You guys say that in Canada? To get out of Dodge. You have a Dodge here? Anybody drive a Dodge? I'm sorry for you. Anyway, <laughs> I drive a Ford. What can I say? I am the chosen and the elect. Those of you... Anyway, we just talked about being haughty and arrogant and prideful, did we not? Okay, so I'm exhibiting that for you. Anyway, I'm sorry. I digress. Avoid, turn away from, the irreverent babble. The word irreverent is that which is unholy. It doesn't honor God. It's not edifying to the Lord. And sometimes the conversations we get in with people, and especially some unbelievers, as we begin to dialogue and debate about the gospel or about things of the church, whatever, it's just flat, flat out unholy. It's irreverent. So why waste your time with what's irreverent? It has no place in the life of the believer or the discussion that we have with those who are in the church or outside the church. And he talks about Babel. That's the undeserving. Babel is just... It's just Babel. 
ever talk to anybody like that? You're having to talk about the gospel and they're just blah, 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 blah. It's kind of like one of those Charlie Brown comics, you know, all you hear is wah, 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 wah. It's just babble. It doesn't make sense. And you want to look at them and go, you want to go, you idiot. That just don't make sense. It's babble. It's nonsense. It's not sanity. But notice also avoid irreverent babble and, he says, contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. This word contradictions is, is when somebody takes the opposite view of you just to be conflictual, just to have contradiction. You ever know anybody like that? I, I've been known to do that in seminary and in college, just take the opposite view just to start a discussion. I know nobody in here is like that other than me, right? Absolutely not. Anybody know anybody like that? Raise your hand. If you're not raising your hand, you are that person. Just want to let you know. Contradictions of what is falsely called. They are calling it truth. In reality, it is falsely called knowledge. It is not true at all, and it's not the application of wisdom. That's what knowledge means, it's the application of wisdom. In other words, they're taking truth and they're trying to apply it in a way in which they are falsely calling it knowledge. I think it's a reinterpretation of what Scripture intended it to be. The discipline to exercise. That's, that's a hard discipline for us sometimes, isn't it? To be disciplined, to avoid irreverent babble and contradiction to what is falsely called knowledge. Especially when you're trying to guard the entrusted deposit that we were given, which is the gospel. But notice the, la- the first part of verse 21. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Notice the danger if it is left unguarded. For by professing it, there's a confession here. Some confess it, some profess it, some put their faith and trust in what they have heard, and it is false. And some of you may know some people today who call themselves Christians who are putting their faith in professing things that are untrue. And in their profession, even though they profess it and even though believe it, they believe it does not make it true. That old thing, what's true to you is true to you, and what's true to me is true to me, is a lie. Satan did that in the garden, and that's where the fall began, where he questioned God's truth. God doesn't give one iota what I think or even what you think. All that matters is what God God says. And he says, notice, for by professing it, some, that's an important word, not all, there have been a few, there have been some of you who have swerved, who have deviated, who have departed from the faith, from the truth, from the gospel that they had received. And I thought long and hard about this in safeguarding the the faith, the truth of the gospel, especially in our current culture today in America and in Canada. How do we do this well? How do we do that well? Is it done on social media? Is it done on Facebook? Twitter? Where is it done? In a classroom? At work? How do we do this well? I, I'm not, I, I don't, I, 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 to be honest with you, I think, to be honest with you, there are times I've done it well and there are times I've not done it well. I've not done it well sometimes. Because what I'm hearing this person say is just so absolutely ridiculous, I just can't, 
just can't shut up. I can't be quiet. Anybody with me? I, I just have a hard time being quiet. And, and I don't think he's saying that we can't stand up for the truth, but I think he's saying there are times we just need to walk away and don't get involved in this tit for tat because we're not going to change their minds. They're not going to change ours. They're not listening to you. All they want to do is to prove their point. And they're trying to win you over, and it ain't happening. It's similar to, I think, what I find in the book of Acts, where Peter and John were arrested, and the Sanhedrin were in a debate over what to do with these two guys who would not stop preaching the gospel, until one of them finally said, you know what, if it's of the Lord, it will survive, and if it's not, it won't, so let it go. And there's sometimes you and I enter into debate with people who claim to be believers and we're trying to win the argument. But sometimes I think we just need to walk away and say, if it's of God, it will go. If it's not, it will die out. I can't win them. I can't convince them. Lord, you're just going to have to deal with that. I remember here not too long ago, that big revival that took place in one of the college campuses in the chapel and university that, that went on for days and weeks. Remember that? I had friends that were just fussing. It's the revival's coming to America, you know? And then some people say, that's not real revival. Those people are not even in the word and blah, blah. And so they were fighting on Facebook and Twitter. And I finally put that scripture in there and said, if it's of God, it will last. If it's not, it will die. Just let it go. And I think sometimes we just need to walk away and let God be God and let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit because only he can convict and only he can change people's minds. But it doesn't mean I don't think that when a brother or sister are slipping away from the gospel, the true gospel faith, that we in love can't go to them and say, hey, bro, hey, sis, I think, I think we got a problem. And try to enter into a relationship of trust and fellowship and being part of the same community because we have a responsibility to guard the gospel, not only in my life, but in each other's lives so that we can all stay true to what God has given us and entrusted to our care. We have a trust, and that trust is the gospel message of Jesus Christ, and it is non-negotiable, no matter what the world says, or even some churches who claim the gospel say. We're going to stay true, and we're going to guard what God has entrusted to us. Lastly, we need to stand firm in our fight. Interesting, this grace be with you. Four words. That's how he ends this letter. Grace be with you. Four words. Started out this way with grace, he ends with grace. You think that's an accident? I don't think so. I think it's very deliberate. But if you were ever to, to finish the letter to these people that you love deeply, that you have invested in, and who have accepted Christ, and this young man that you have a, a trust in as well, and this is a grace be with you. That's it. That's all he wrote. Grace be with you. Why is that important? Grace is cherus. It means God's unmerited favor. God's unmerited favor. In other words, the life that you are called to live in this letter can only be done by grace through faith. You don't have what it takes to make it happen. You're going to have to have grace that's going to help you do that. 
which helps me understand there's an all-sufficient provision in the grace of God that enables and equips us to do what we in and of ourselves cannot do because I don't have what it takes to make it happen, but God does in me and through me to make that happen, and it's only done by grace through faith. I can't live the life that he has described in 1 Timothy nor any other aspect of the New Testament anywhere on my own without him. I need his grace. Like the Apostle Paul who prayed three times. Lord, remove the thorn in my side. And what did God say? My grace is sufficient. And only his grace is sufficient for you and I to live out the life that he's calling us to live, this all-sufficient provision. But notice this all-encompassing presence. He says, grace be with, to be with. That is a preposition of association. And that's important, grace be with. That means we have this possession of God's grace that is with us. Jesus said when he left his disciples, I will be with you. There's never a moment, there's never a time in which you are walking the walk and living the life that God has called you to live or to walk. You're doing it on your own. He's always there with you by your side. Always. Whether you see him or not, or feel him or not, or understand him or not, he is always with you. Always. And we need to remind ourselves of that, maybe not just daily, but maybe sometimes minute by minute, depends on what you're going through. Because I think we have a tendency sometimes, and when we're going through tough times, not to see God, not to feel God, not to understand God, and wonder, God, are you with me? Have you abandoned me? And the answer is no, never. He's a persistent God, as we sang about. And notice, lastly, he says, grace be with you. That word you is a personal pronoun, but it is in the plural. There's a lot of debate over that among some of the scholars that I have read, but it is a personal pronoun, but it is in the plural, meaning, Timothy, it's not only with you, but it's with the whole church. There's not a special dispensation for those who are elders or pastors. It's for all of us. God's grace is available. It is all-inclusive promise for all of us. I want to read this as we close. Derek Redman, a British runner who participated in the 1992 Olympic Games in Barcelona, barely into the 400-meter race, he pulled a hamstring and fell to the ground. Everyone thought that he was finished, but much to the surprise of the spectators, the courageous athlete slowly stood and began to hobble around the track. However, even with such tenacity, it was apparent that there was simply no way he could finish the race. Just as he was about to fall again, a man came out of the stands, put his arm around the injured runner, and assisted him all the way across the finish line. The stadium roared with approval as Derek Redman completed his race. The scene was even more moving, made even more significant by the realization that the one who had came alongside Derek was his own father. Together, linked arm in arm, Father and son cross the finish line as one. You cannot run the race. You cannot finish strong on your own. You don't have what it takes. Turn to the person next to you and say, you ain't got what it takes. Come on. You ain't got what it takes. Looking back at the eyes, that's bad grammar, but it's good theology. You don't have what it takes. 
You can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You don't have what's necessary and what's required. You need an all-sufficient grace that's been given to you by the Father to help you run your race and finish your course and to finish strong. What God has begun here, he's done a good thing. And I want to encourage you, church family, finish strong. Father, thank you for the joy and the privilege and opportunity we have today to be challenged by this scripture. And I pray that it would speak to us individually and also corporately as your church. God, I pray that you would speak to us individually because only you know where we are. It's easy for us to come to church on Sunday morning and wear masks and play games and put on a pretense, but down deep inside, there are struggles and fears and aspirations and worries and selfishness and sin and all kinds of things we struggle with, things you know about, things we can't hide from you. Lord, in in all humility, we acknowledge that there's no way in the world that we can overcome, that we can achieve, that we can have the victory, that we can attain all that you have asked us to do for you on our own. So we look to you and only you to provide for us in your presence with the power to work in us and through us to glorify your son and to finish strong. Help us, Lord, in you and through you to finish strong. In Jesus' name, amen.